It's good to be with you again. Let's take our Bibles and go to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 11 through 15 this morning. This is perhaps the most important passage theologically, foundationally, in this letter to Titus. Uh, I, I feel inadequate to do this text justice in just one sermon, um, but we're going to look at it together and I pray that it will be an encouragement and a blessing to us as we hear what God has to say. The passage focuses on the grace of God that has appeared that brings salvation. But God's grace often gets distorted or polluted in one of two ways. On one hand, grace runs counter to the way that the world works. We understand that. It's difficult for us to grasp and get used to grace, something that's free, favor that's given to us, that we do nothing to earn. You see, the world works on the merit system. That's the way our minds work. If you do well in school, you get good grades. You win awards and recognition. If you do well in sports, you make the team. You receive accolades or praise or applause. If you get into college, the merit system continues to reward excellence. This continues in the business world. Exceptional performance earns promotions and raises. And sloppy performance will usually get you fired. And there's something that's right about this. Hard work pays off. But in a spiritual context, think of all the world's religions. All of them, except for biblical Christianity, work on such a merit system. The Roman Catholic Church, the Greek Orthodox Church, Mormons, Muslims, Jehovah's Witness, they all teach a system of merit salvation. You have to add your works to what Christ has done in order to gain eternity. This merit system of salvation permeates the public perception and thought. Ask anyone on the street his opinion of how a person gets into heaven and you'll hear something about being a good person. Even the idea of karma. If you do good, it will come back to you. This was at the heart of the Pharisaic legalistic religion in the times of Jesus and Paul. And this isn't just an issue out there. It's an issue within each of us. We naturally tend toward a religious viewpoint that seeks for a checklist of things that we must do in order to feel right with God. And yet God's grace also gets distorted from another opposite side. It makes the mistake that grace, that God's grace is for our self-centered liberty. Many professing Christians wrongly think that God's grace means he gives us a free pass to live however we please. That allows us to sin. That there's no real consequences for disobedience. Yes, God is disappointed. He's dissatisfied with that kind of life. But the punishment was taken by Jesus. And if you emphasize the need to obey God's commandments or to do good works, you may be labeled a legalist. If you warn people that their sloppy view of sin will result in God's discipline, that talk is easily disregarded. 
For some, grace means permission for careless, undisciplined living. Is that what grace is? How are we to understand how grace and godliness go together? Certainly, we don't want to emphasize that we are made right with God by our own works. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, depending on Christ alone. So where do good works come in? Our text is going to correct both of these polar opposites, these serious misconceptions about God and his grace. Our text will teach us that God's saving grace trains Christ's people for godliness and good works. It certainly is to be a part of every believer's life. But how it's worked out is what Paul's going to explain for us. Let's look now at chapter 2, Titus chapter 2. We're going to back up just two verses to where Pastor Jonathan ended last week before we start into verse 11. So chapter 2, verse 9. This is the last of the groups of people that Paul is addressing. He says, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. And here really is encapsulated in this last phrase, the purpose for all these ethical commands, these virtues. He says in verse 10, so that in everything they may adorn or demonstrate the beauty of the doctrine of God our Savior. And now verse 11 continues. It's the foundation of these virtues. He says, for this is the reason. Because the grace of God has appeared. Bringing salvation for all people. It's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed or happy hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's ask for his help as we seek to understand what Paul is teaching us here in this text. Father, we know that your word is alive and active. It discerns our hearts. Lord, you warn us again and again in your word that we are easily self-deceived. We think that we are doing better than we are. But may your word speak truth into our lives as it both humbles us, as we see the gospel tell us that we are far worse than we ever want to see or admit. And yet at the same time, we are more loved and welcomed and received and affirmed in Jesus Christ because he was willing to give his own life for our eternal salvation. Encourage us now in our Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. When El Nino's rain deluged Southern California one winter, the potential dangers of mudslides became a real nightmare for one family in particular. While this family was still asleep in their home, a wave of mud tore down the hillside. It severed the house from its foundations 
and it swept their sleeping baby out into the night. The parents began to search frantically through the darkness for that child. They tromped through the mud and the muck for hours that had descended on their whole neighborhood. They searched and dug and called for her throughout the hours of the early morning without result. When dawn came, a rescue team member, himself covered in mud, came to the parents with a mud-caked bundle in his arms. The baby was filthy, but thankfully alive. Now, what did the mother do the moment she received her precious child back into her arms? Well, in spite of the mud and the filth that did not repulse her in any way, she clung to that baby. She washed her and she determined as much as was within her power, she would never let something so horrific happen again. This text is helping us answer the question, why must we be concerned about godliness since we're already saved by grace? You see, the answer that Paul is giving us is that when the filth of my sin was sweeping me into the lostness of eternity, my God covered himself in the muck and the mud of this world in order to rescue me. He embraced me. He clung to me like that mother clung to her daughter in spite of my filth. And now he urges me, stay out of that mud. This astounding, miraculous grace should make us so grateful, so in love with a God who would stoop to save sinners. That we cannot stand whatever is in our lives that resoils us, that makes us dirty again. We cannot choose that intentionally. We cannot choose what offends him. A true understanding of God's grace in the gospel will make us diligent to renounce ungodliness in our lives and to pursue godliness. In this passage, Paul wants us to fix our gaze on Christ. As he emphasizes that God's grace to us through Christ is going to change us. It must. It's inevitable if we understand what he's done. This morning, we'll see first the appearance of grace, secondly, the appearance of glory, and thirdly, the declaration of that grace. First, the appearance of grace in verses 11 and 12. The first phrase in verse 11 presents us with an important question that we need to answer if we're going to understand this passage. What does Paul mean when he talks about the grace of God? When we think of it first, it's this ethereal concept. What is the grace of God? Is it just an abstract concept referring to God's power or his favor, his kindness, or is he talking about something more concrete? Well, the answer is kind of yes to both. See, God's grace is his undeserved favor, but that's always worked out concretely in action. And here Paul's referring to a specific point in time that reveals God's grace to us. Really, we could say a specific person who came in time. So we see God's grace rescue us. Paul says this in 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. God saved us 
And God called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Paul's telling Timothy there that you received grace before time began. And which has now been manifested or revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. If you look down in our book, Titus, over to chapter 3, verse 4, we see this again. But when the goodness and loving kindness, there, that's grace again. When we saw the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. In these verses, grace is revealed and personified in Jesus Christ. And he is sufficient to save any sinner. The word appeared comes from a Greek word. That's the root of our English word epiphany. The idea is a sudden and welcome sight like the dawning of a new morning after the darkest of nights. It breaks the horizon for the first time at daybreak. In classic Greek literature, it was used of the stories of the gods when they appeared at just the right moment when a victim or an innocent person was suffering and his need was the greatest. Picture in your mind Superman showing up to Lois Lane's rescue as she's plummeting toward her death as she's falling off the building of the Daily Planet. Like the superhero shows up at just the right moment. Paul's saying God's saving grace appeared at just the right moment. A specific moment in human history and it's for all men indiscriminately. This doesn't mean that all men will be saved, but that God will save anyone that comes to him in repentance and faith. If you don't know him, hear the message of this text that God is willing to save any and all who come to him. Secondly, we see in verse 12 that God's grace trains. His saving grace does not only rescue sinners, it teaches or trains them to live godly lives. The word training here in verse 12 includes the ideas of instruction, discipline, correction, and education. It's very holistic. One author says we could understand it to include all that is involved in child training. It's Ephesians 6.1, bring your children up in the nurture and instruction of the Lord. It's not just one kind of teaching. There are both negative and positive aspects to this training. And we see that as the verse continues, grace teaches us to say no to ourselves, to our own sinful hearts. Don't be deceived that if you have God's grace working in your life, that it'll be easy. That you don't have to work. That growth is by osmosis. That's not true. We have to renounce or deny ungodliness and worldly passions. It means we have to plant a stake in the ground and say, I will not go this way any longer. I refuse to be stained by the mud of my sin. This includes both internal and external sin. Ungodliness is, again, rather holistic. It's any thought or behavior that does not accurately reflect the character of God. It's essentially living life apart from God. It means acting without God as the priority or the focus or the center. 
And ungodliness here doesn't just apply to those things that we know are sin. That'd be kind of an easy and nice out, wouldn't it? But it means even the good things that I do without thought of God. Even as Christians, we so often live as practical atheists, don't we? We go about our daily lives doing even good things without thought of God. Does that please him? Is that Christ-likeness? When Jesus says, I have come to do the will of my Father, that's what we're to be thinking. Paul's saying that as we seek to be what God has saved us to be, grace will teach us that we say no to our own natural tendencies. There has to be a conscious, intentional rejection of thoughts, words, and actions that are opposed to God-centered living. I want you to understand this cuts directly and contrary to everything that our world tells us you are today. You don't get to live however you feel like you want to be. You were made by him and for him. He tells you what is right and holy and satisfying. And you will be most satisfied when you find your satisfaction in him. We must also say no to worldly passions. The word for passions here is not a negative word in itself. It's simply a word denoting strong desire. But when the desires are described as worldly, They describe the second area we're to deny. And here's what this means. We're to say no to our preoccupation with the things of this life that deceive or blind us from seeing Christ as of ultimate value. Certainly that would include sins, but that can even include good things that we make ultimate things. This means seeing the gifts of a good giver and not seeing the giver. Peter admonishes us this way in 1 Peter 4, 1 and 2. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves, prepare yourself with the same way of thinking. Life isn't meant to be easy or pleasing to you. And he says in verse 2, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. John informs us the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Grace trains us to say no to our sinful desires. And then secondly, it teaches us to say yes or to live a life of godliness. We're to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, Paul says. Self-control is this virtue that Paul's been focusing on most of the section, in most of this letter. He's saying this is what Christians need to be characterized by in a culture that's saying anything goes. Some versions translate this word as sensible or sober-minded. It's having a biblical sense, a wisdom of how to live this life. It means having right priorities that guide and regulate your behavior. The second word in the list is upright. It describes conduct toward others that cannot be condemned. And the final word is godly. It describes a life modeled after the character of God. It's one who makes his priority to please God. 
Now, we could see these three virtues as focused on a believer's relationship or his behavior toward himself. He's self-controlled. Toward others, he's upright. And then toward God, he's godly. And here's the real point that Paul is driving at. Is the relationship that God has provided to you through Christ, is that saving grace changing what you desire and prioritize? Is it making a difference at all? Is it changing the way that you think and act? Is God's saving grace, is his mercy, his kindness to you, shaping you as a father, a husband, a mother, a wife, a child, a student, a co-worker? Is it changing the way you react toward God and you react toward others? In Christian teaching, it is not human self-effort, but divine grace that enables, that even requires virtuous and godly living. So here's what Paul is saying to you. If you're going to grow in godliness, you're going to have to apply his grace to your life personally. You're going to have to know the gospel and meditate on it as a believer and say, if Christ would do all of this for me, then I must change. I must grow. God's grace does not remove your responsibility to work at your growth. It actually raises the bar. It raises the intensity with which every believer should pursue God because there's much greater motivation than just making other people think you're a good Christian or trying to get God to come through for you. It's a response to all that he's done for you. And as you understand that, how could you not pursue godliness is what Paul's saying. It demands both discipline and dependence. You're going to have to meditate and target specific areas of sin and weakness in your life and practice saying no to yourself. Where do you need to say no? And where do you need to begin to say yes in your own heart and life? This means you're going to have to set some standards. You're going to have to put up some walls or fences against your sinful tendencies. You're going to have to ask for accountability. You're going to have to take action. Grace does not mean you put in no effort. Our personal standards in areas where we need grace to work in our lives then are not intended to look the same in every other believer's life. Isn't that where we often get into trouble? We think, well, I'm setting some standards so that I'm not walking away from God. Everybody else should have the same standard. Maybe, maybe not. That's really not your business. Are you pursuing godliness? We're to take personal action and apply God's grace to our lives. What verse 11 and 12 teach us is that we're going to be growing and changing by God's grace to us in Christ as we remember, as we look back on his first appearing. John Stott writes, the emphasis here is on the necessity, not the mere possibility of good works. Secondly, we see the appearance of glory. What verses 13 and 14 then teach us is that we're to be growing and changing by God's grace to us in the appearance of our glorious Christ and his future coming. That's to motivate our growth. He's coming again. 
He says, we are waiting for our blessed hope, verse 13, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. And again, the same two purposes, positive and negative. First negative, to redeem us from all lawlessness. We're to be done with that. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous, committed, eager for good works. We're to keep looking back and we're to keep looking forward. Both are focused on the appearances of Christ. So we see the object of future hope. Believers wait expectantly for Christ's coming. We're to look forward to it with anticipation as a child who's constantly gazing out the window for the arrival of a beloved family member or friend as they wait up a party or a gathering or a fellowship. They're going back to that window again and again. Are they here yet? Are they here yet? Are they here yet? You could translate the phrase blessed hope as happy hope, joyful hope. This is bringing the promise of our final reward. And it's found again in a person. We're to be looking forward to our king's return. Think of it in this way. In verse 11 and 14, we see that through Christ, God has dealt with the penalty of our sin. He rescued us from sin's penalty. The grace of God appeared bringing salvation. We've been saved from his wrath through his grace alone. Then in verses 12 and 14, we see it again. We're saved from the power of sin. We really can make progress in the Christian life. Because Christ has freed us, we're given a new heart, new desires. We can walk in the Spirit. We're dead to sin. We're no longer enslaved by its power. Though we still sin on a daily basis, we don't have to be controlled or dominated by it. That's hope. That's good news to those who've been struggling with sin over and over again. You don't have to give in. Indwelling sin still rages war against us. And yet there's hope in reminding ourselves it is defeated. That's not my identity. In verse 13, we'll see in the coming of Christ that we will be rescued finally from the presence of sin. Listen to how John echoes these thoughts in 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. There's that word again. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And notice how John applies this then in verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We're waiting with happy hope for the arrival of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you see how Paul is very keenly focused on Jesus in these verses? It's not common for us to see Jesus referred to directly as God as we see here in this verse. It's led some commentators to debate whether or not this is a reference to two persons of the Trinity or just one. Is this God the Father and our Savior Jesus Christ? Or is this just about Jesus Christ? I think there's good evidence to conclude that it's focused on Christ alone. 
First, contextually, if you look back at chapter 2.10 that we just read, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Same phrase, it's used of one person of the Godhead, there of the Father. The words God and Savior both refer to him without question. So it seems as though in verse 13, Paul can do the same thing referring to Christ. He's the one he's talking about throughout this passage as the focus of our salvation and our progress in sanctification. Though it's not common that Christ is called God directly, we do see the same titles used elsewhere in the New Testament. For instance, 2 Peter 1.1, Peter writes, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's referred to specifically as God again in Romans 9.5. The point is strengthened by the grammar and theology of the text. The focus is on Christ. And that's the point. Do you see just how central Jesus is to be in our lives? I I want you to see it from a time perspective. God's grace to us in Christ is the focus of our past, our present, and our future. Do you see? He saved you in the past By his grace, by his appearing. That same grace is presently now continuing to sanctify you. Training you to say no to sin and yes to him. And one day in the future, Christ will complete this work in you. Not because of how well you have lived. But again, because of his grace. Christ is the believer's past, present, and future. He's our focus our hope, our motivation for obeying, our strength to obey. The righteous, the self-righteous rather nature of my heart falsely believes that if I am good, if I do good things, try to obey God's commands, then God will come through for me. I'm always tempted to fall back into that kind of thinking. But this gospel we see right here in this passage teaches me that I'm accepted by God through Jesus Christ and therefore I have a strong and important obligation to live a new and holy life. I have an obligation. We just sang in our song, Turn Your Eyes, Turn Your Eyes to the Hillside, where justice and mercy embrace. There the Son of God gave his life for us and our measureless, our measureless debt was erased. It's gone. What kind of response would honor that sacrifice and glorify him? Are you living that kind of a response? We see in verse 14, the purpose of Christ's appearance. In verse 14, Paul's going to again restate that positive and the negative. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. He voluntarily gave up his life. No one took it from him. He surrendered himself in order to rescue, to redeem enemies, sinners, strangers and aliens, those dead in their trespasses and sins. Commentator D. Edmund Hebert states, who gave himself for us, that phrase summarizes that work as voluntary, exhaustive, and substitutionary. And his giving of himself 
was the grandest of all gifts. To pay a ransom meant to buy a slave's freedom. This is why Christ came. He came to serve and to give his life a ransom. Isn't it true in life that anything we don't pay for, we tend to take for granted? Right? If you didn't work for it, if it costs you nothing, it's easy to take that thing for granted. So one of the dangers in our Christian lives is that we can tend to think or act like God's grace is cheap or easy. We would never say this out loud, but we tend to live this way, don't we? We tend to live with our sin in that way. Grace is free. God will forgive me. Because it's free, then it must be easy to come by, right? But this passage tells us we must never, we must never think this way. The gospel tells us I cannot think this way. That's why we must meditate deeply and daily on the cost. Grace was not free. Grace was not cheap. Therefore, I cannot live in a sloppy, uncaring, undisciplined way. He says he gave his life not only to redeem us, but to purify us. This echoes the Old Testament ideas of sacrifice were made clean by the blood of the covenant. 1 John 1, it says the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We're made clean. Think of the different aspects of your salvation that Paul is highlighting. Think of the depth and the breadth of God's love to you in Christ. These are Old Testament ideas being applied to us as God's people now. Think of how God redeemed Israel out of slavery in Egypt by a mighty and miraculous rescue that was meant to picture for us all that God would do to save his people from slavery and bondage in sin. Picture all the sacrifices, the millions of sacrifices after year after year of the Day of Atonement, blood being spilled to pay for sin. The blood of bulls and goats never saved anyone, but it foreshadowed the atoning death of Christ to remove and cleanse us from all sin. And here's the question this leads us to. Why? Why? Why would God do all of this? Paul answers, to make us his own. What a prize. Does that make any sense to you at all? Why would God want you? Why would he want me? What do I bring to the table? Why go to all this effort to make sinners his own, his own special possession? Do you hear the preciousness of that label, that title? You're his own. He does it to declare to all the world much about him. To declare what kind of a God he is. Ephesians 1 says it again and again. It was for the praise of his glorious grace. Ephesians 2, so that no human can boast in anything but God. You have no right to be proud of any way that you live. If you're doing good, it's by his grace. 
The final phrase of verse 14 tells us we're his possession, a people to be zealous, zealous for good works. The word zealous demonstrates intensity. This is a word Paul used of himself to describe the intensity, his zeal for Judaism before his conversion. It's why he persecuted and was even willing to put people to death. He thought that was right. He was intense, zealous about this, committed to it. It means total devotion or commitment to a cause. Think about what would compel a sinful, naturally selfish human being to be zealous to do good for God's glory and others. Only the gospel could make such a change. Only the gospel. And if we understand what Paul is describing for us, that Christ has done for us, this isn't a command that's hard to obey. The gospel gives me wings and bids me fly to obey. I'm happy to respond to him with good deeds. We're to be eager, prioritizing good works that reveal what a God who loves unworthy people look like. In chapter 3, Paul's going to restate this gospel message again and then conclude in verse 8. The saying is trustworthy. This gospel truth is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things. And he gives a purpose statement so that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. One author rightly concludes, Paul anchors his call for godliness in the fact that one purpose of Jesus' death was to make his people holy. And this statement is convicting and important. To forsake godliness is to despise the sacrifice of Christ. Are you despising his sacrifice by the way that you live? Another commentator summarizes, our works are the natural response to his work. Zeal for him becomes our daily desire. Having been prepared by him for this kind of life, he's given us his grace. His life is within us. We're unified with him. We have his spirit. Grace teaches us who is Lord and grace empowers us to serve him as Lord. What does this look like? Think of the way that Christ lived on this earth throughout his life. He's focused on serving God by serving others. His commitment was to do the will of God by speaking truth, by doing good, by following the Father's plan. Think of how Paul lived his life as a servant, a slave of God. Whatever he says, I will do for the faith, for the sake of the faith of the elect. He was eager to share this gospel message with both believers and unbelievers. When you understand gospel grace, it opens your mouth. It helps you tell others of Christ. It means that you become more and more familiar with gospel truths as you preach it to yourself every day. We're to preach to ourselves that I am not my own. I'm bought with a price. Therefore, I must glorify God in my body. It reminds me whether I'm eating or drinking or whatever I'm doing, I'm to do all for the glory of God. It tells me I must love others as in the same self-sacrificial way as Christ loved me. It reminds me I was made by him 
and for him. As John the Baptist says, it tells me he must increase and I must decrease. It means I seek to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and a godly life. And therefore, this is the finishing touch on all those virtues he's commanded of all those different age groups listed in verses 1 through 10. Are you zealous for good works? Are you committed to them for the sake of honoring the glory of our, our God, of our Christ? Are you committed to pursuing godliness or are you coasting? Are you forsaking godliness and despising his sacrifice? Consider how your roles in life should change if you made Christ preeminent as he's presented here in this text. What needs to change in your relationships? Thirdly and finally, very briefly, the declaration of God's glorious grace in verse 15. This really could end this section or it could go with the next chapter and begin that section. But essentially, I think it ties all of what's happening in chapter 2 together. Paul ends this section and he begins the next by giving Titus four commands here in this verse, highlighting that this message is to be central. This is what he is to teach. He says again, declare these things, exhort, encourage, and rebuke or correct with all authority. This isn't your message. This is the message. And he says, let no one disregard or despise you. The command to speak these things actually bookends the command he gave back in chapter, or verse 1 of chapter 2. Look there. Look at the first command. But as for you, Titus, teach. Same word as declare there in verse 15. Same Greek word. This is what motivates our behavior, our lifestyle. The churches on Crete have gotten off message through the wrong-headed teaching of those currently in charge, of those false teachers. Paul's admonishing us that we must immerse ourselves in this gospel message. This has to keep motivating me to walk with God, to want to know him more. He stacks command right on top, one after the other. He's saying, make this a first priority. Our text this morning teaches us that the overwhelming, undeserved, glorious grace of God compels. It compels, it urges, it calls to us again and again to eagerly pursue godliness and good works, not for our own sake or our own glory or our own recognition or praise, but to show what he can do in the life of a sinner. Elizabeth Elliot describes a life shaped by a zealous desire to please Christ in her book, Shadow of the Almighty. In this book, she records many of her husband's journal entries throughout his short life. At age 22, he wrote, I see clearly now that anything, whatever it is, if it be not on the principle of grace, it's not of God. Regarding living in light of the second coming at age 20, he wrote to his 15-year-old sister, fix your eyes on the rising morning star. Live every day as if the Son of Man were at the door and gear your thinking to that fleeting moment. Walk as if the next step would carry you across the threshold of heaven. 
We're again at age 22. How poorly will appear anything but a consuming operative faith in the person of Christ when he comes. How lost, alas, a life lived in any other light. His entire life portrayed intense zeal for the Lord and his work. He wrote, wherever you are, be all there. Live to the hilt or the fullest every situation you believe to be the will of God. Give your life unreservedly with zeal toward good works to a God who gave everything for you. That's how grace works. It saves us and then it continues to train us and motivate us to be godly people in this present age. An age where people need to see the gospel making a difference. It needs to see people eager, zealous, committed to good deeds as we look for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It needs to see people who are not preoccupied with the stuff, the junk, the clutter, the temporary, because they're focused on a God in the next life and what matters most. We give ourselves to this God because he gave himself for us. Paul concludes in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, for Christ's love compels me. Like a magnet, it pulls me forward because we are convinced that one died for all. Christ died for all who are his and therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. The last verse we sang of turn your eyes reads, turn your eyes to the heavens. Our king will return for his own. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will shout all glory to Jesus alone. That's it, isn't it? That's what Paul's aiming at. That's what we're to be aiming at with our life, with our belief, with our actions. That's the point. When you begin to see Christ in all his splendor, his beauty and glory, when you meditate and recognize all he's done for you in his life, death, resurrection, and future coming, you can't help but want to live for him. Do you see? Preach the gospel his grace to yourself every day. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Dim in the light of We preach this gospel to ourselves. It cannot fail to begin to change you. If we preach this gospel to ourselves, it cannot fail to begin to change you. Father in heaven, we need to do just Stand amazed in the presence of Jesus. Father in heaven, we stand amazed in the presence of Jesus and gave himself for us. Who loved us, who died to make us his own, gave himself for us to make us clean. Who died to make us his own, we read and hear texts like this, we must confess. Father, when we're not living, read and hear texts like this, we must confess. Every believer who is sensitive to your spirit as he applies the word to our hearts knows that there are things Every that believer who sensitive to your spirit as he with. applies the word to our hearts knows that Help there are us things to truly that put them away. We must confess and be done with. 
Help us to truly consider ourselves Help dead us to, to truly sin. put them away and alive to Christ. Help us to truly consider ourselves. Or this can be very to hard to apply. It can be very hard to, to rather keep in mind on a daily basis. Or this can but be very hard make to apply. Much of it can be very hard to rather keep in mind on a daily basis. But may we make much this of gospel you. message is not just for those day who need to be first saved out. from their sin. It is for all this of us. This gospel who message is not just for those who need it to be gives first saved from their sin. And it desire is for all of us who believe an obligation. To respond it gives us motive, with grateful and desire, joy and, and duty, glad and obligation to respond. Father, with grateful you've given to joy us in Christ, and we glad gladly obedience. turn our hearts to you. Father, knowing what you've given to us in Christ, our eyes on gladly Christ turn and set aside the sin that so easily may we fix us. our in eyes Jesus on Christ. Name we pray. Amen. And set aside the 